For uh, the interim break, what I've been doing is a series called uh, Benchmarks. And uh, if you've not been with us, I started something a while back called the Big Book Cover to Cover, where I'm attempting to review each book of the Bible in one Sunday. I've never done this before. It's been an exercise for me. Some of you are loving it. Some of you are like, when are you going to get back to teaching the Bible? So, you know, I, I feel the tension. I feel your pain. Uh, in the absence of our live stream set up, which God willing is coming soon, and uh, some other things that are playing at, at, for right now, I've decided to do this series called Benchmarks. And I've done a, a series of messages on passages that have been not just central to my life, but have been applicable to many people's lives over the 40 years that I've been trying to encourage people in the word and to grow as believers in Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to begin a three-part series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit or Pneumatology 101. It is a vast subject. It's a complex subject. It's going to be a little bit more Sunday school today than exposition. So just to give you fair warning, and um, I hope you'll, you'll stay with me on this. For, for many Christians, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is perhaps mysterious or very confusing. And it seems in Christianity, and I use a broad umbrella on that, whether it's evangelical or denominational, there are all kinds of opinions and information on what the Spirit is, who is He, what He does, what He doesn't do, what He did, what will He do. And in some churches, He's relegated to the corners and not spoken of. In other churches, it's all they speak about. And so we've got this cultural context of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, maybe like you, uh, early on in my experience, I was introduced to some charismatic Christians and lovely people, but they had a different view than I had been uh, trained in. I came out of the Catholic Church. I came to Christ as a teenager. I double dipped between the Mass and um, a Bible church for a number of years until I finally decided to go to the Bible church, and that was a big, hard decision. And um, I've discovered something, uh, I can't prove it, but it's an observation that seems consistent. Where you came to Christ theologically tends to be where you stay. So if you come to Christ out of a charismatic background, if you come to Christ out of a Catholic background, whatever it is, that seems to be where your roots are. And for my charismatic friends, they are deeply rooted in those experiential theologies in some of the Holy Spirit's work. And again, when you speak of charismatic theology, there's a broad bandwidth of what people believe. You can't say all charismatics believe X or practice Y. And so we have to be open-handed and careful about that. What I did observe about these, these couples that I met were they were sincere. They loved Christ. Uh, when I pushed wrenches for a living in college, uh, I worked at a Ford dealership working on trucks. I met this man in a very rough environment in a shop, and he was a believer. He was very charismatic. And he, he was kind to me. He invited me over. I was a poor college kid. He invited me over. His wife was lovely. They had a little, you know, now we call it farm to table like it's some new idea. You know, they had a garden <clears throat> and uh, they, they took produce out of their garden and they cooked it. And, and they, she was a fabulous cook. And they had three little boys and I was a college kid and I would play with their boys and she would feed me this great food. So it was a win-win. And um, they would talk about God in ways 
let's just say the Bible church I was attending did not talk about God. It was intimate. God told me, God said, God showed me, God let, and it wasn't just an act, that was their life. And I loved them and respected them for the intimacy they had with God. That said, a lot of what they talked about was experience, not scripture. Later on, I would meet other charismatic friends and we would have wonderful discussions. I remember sitting across the table with a family in Texas for hours going through all the passages on tongues because they believed in speaking in tongues. And so we walked through from Babel to Acts chapter 2 to 1 Corinthians, going through this. And at the end of what was a very collegial, kind discussion, um, they were convinced I was wrong. I was convinced they were wrong. And we still loved each other. I'm not mad at somebody that doesn't hold my view. I was telling some, some folks this morning, you seen the T-shirt that says, I'm silently judging you for your grammar? I want to get one that says I'm silently judging you for your theology. <laughs> anyway, maybe you can make one for me. Uh, I'm not mad. I'm not going to try to straighten people out. But what I have hopefully grown in my own Christian life is it's got to be clear in here. It's got to be rooted and grounded here. Because the moment you turn experiential theology into a reality, you're going to be in trouble. It's going to happen. And then you've got other things that you have to address. While I was confused by these men and women, they loved God, and I loved them, and they truly were in his word. Truth be told, they were probably more in the word than a lot of Bible church people I knew. So this isn't a who's right and who's wrong. This is a recalibration of what does the text tell us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to talk about for a few weeks. Uh, by the way, next Sunday, Robert J. Morgan will be back. Those of you who are Robert Morgan fans, or if you have a friend that loves his books, he's been here a few times and you all loved him. And uh, Cindy and I, in just side sidebar, pray for us. We'll be at the Cove, Billy Graham Training Center. And we're speaking to the first ever group they've done of uh, Gold Star Wives. So it's going to be a moving and interesting time to try to minister to these wives who've lost their husbands in the military. And um, that's a whole different story. But I thought, well, we need to get Robert back because he was, he, was he was so well received. And I enjoy listening to him. And I just want to encourage you to come back next week to be sure you hear him. Uh, this really came to a head with me when I was finishing seminary. And there was one of my professors who was a Hebrew scholar scary, brilliant. You know, people that are just scary, they're so smart, they're just, they're just wrong. They're just wrong. They're too smart. Well, he was that way, and he spent some time, let's just say, in the wilderness during his, uh, and I mean that literally, not metaphorically, uh, out in the woods when he was doing post-postdoctoral work, and he and his wife had some experiences. <clears throat> he completely changed his theological viewpoint. And it wasn't enough that he moved into what in those days was called the signs and wonders. Some of you from California know the John Wimber, Peter Wagner story. And he moved into that headlong and he didn't like labels. None of us like to be labeled. And uh, he and I had many conversations, but he's so smart and so intimidating. It was hard to have a conversation, but he was working very hard to get me to drink his Kool-Aid. And that was fine. I'm, I'm 
I stand on my own two feet right now at least. And so I'm just trying to understand the perspectives. Right versus wrong doesn't always help. I want to go back to what the text tells us and what we can know for sure. And what we can't know is we have to say, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to lean on the Bible, not my experience. But the little thing I say all the time, don't let the world teach you theology. I should amend it. Don't let your experience teach you theology. Because experiences come and go and they will change. Um, by no means in three messages will I paint a comprehensive picture of the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian Godhead, etc. But I do want to look at some passages and some framework to help you think critically. Um, Cindy and I, as was mentioned last week, by the way, another sidebar, thank you all for last week. That was some uh, unexpected and very humbling for Cindy and me. For those of you that weren't here, uh, they had several folks give a little word of, you know, thanks for Cindy and me. It was our 40th anniversary last Sunday. It was just delightful. It was so, it was just right. It wasn't too much. It was just right. We appreciate the love. Um, but in, in, the, in the process of that, we, uh, someone mentioned the two-year group. Jay, I think, mentioned the two-year group Cindy and I have done for many years where we take six, seven, eight couples for two years in our home every Sunday night, and we try to mentor them. And it's a pretty rigorous program. I would call it a grad school. We, they have to do homework every week. And I meet with the men one-on-one, -on -one, and Cindy and, and, and Christy and Jay helped us last go around. Christy, and they would meet with the men and the women one-on-one, -on -one, and we walk with them for two years. And the two frameworks that we build it on is Bible study, methodology, and theology. Now, we tell them we're going to do a marriage mentor group, but that's just the guys. <laughs> we're going to teach them how to read and study the Bible and how to think theologically. Because my thesis is... This book is sufficient for a life of faith and godliness in Christ Jesus, but you need, you need an index to the subjects. A, a theology handbook doesn't solve all the problems, and it's not as though the Bible is not sufficient. Most of us need someone to have indexed it. So when the first dictionary was made, some person literally had scraps of paper with words on it in boxes and eventually put those together with meanings underneath them. And think of a theology handbook as an index to the subjects of the scripture. It's not inerrant, but a good theology is going to index and help you sort through some of these things. When we came to the section on the Holy Spirit, I would give them an assignment. And this was the assignment, basically. I think we have a slide. I wanted them to write out a brief time when you felt, believed, heard, or knew that the Holy Spirit was telling you something. Then I wanted them, secondly, to review that. After they've written it down, review it. Give it a real careful look at what you just wrote. And can you find one, two, three points that are precise on how you knew or how you believed it was the Spirit of God communicating to you? Third, as you reflect on that, how do you know for sure? How do you know for sure it was the Holy Spirit and not just an experience? And then fourth, in general, and this changes the angle of the questions, and some of us have had heard this language. Uh, Christians might explain the Holy Spirit as the Lord told me, Holy Spirit told me, he led me, he impressed me, or something else, inclined me. And then five, have you ever had another Christian, quote, speak a word, close quote, 
uh, from the Holy Spirit to you. How many of you have had that experience? I have many times. And they come and they tell you, God told me I had a woman come early in the, I was 29 years old at this little church. And she, she came in a, in a frantic drive early morning one day. And she goes, I had a dream last night and God told me to tell you this. What do you do with that information? And what if it doesn't come true? Or what if it's not right? And this is where experiential theology can cause some challenges in the way we look at the Holy Spirit's role. So the following week we would, just, we would meet and I would have them share and people were willing to share. Tell me about those stories. And I mean, I, I, won't, I won't belabor them, but you can imagine they were pretty interesting. And some of them, you would argue, were incontrovertible evidence that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. The bottom line was, if it worked out, they attributed it to the Holy Spirit. If what was said over them, if what they believed they heard or were inclined to do, they said, well, then it had to be the Holy Spirit. To which I would say, how many of you had an experience that didn't work out? And then there was something that we all would do. We would say, well, the reason it didn't work out was because God was actually trying to teach me this, which is a wonderfully convenient get out of jail free card. So when you make a decision to do this and it doesn't work out, not to be too indelicate, but I've seen this with married couples. God led us together. He told us to get married. We prayed about it and we're going to get married. And we sent them to pre-marriage counseling or they come to see me. And I'm just scratching my head going, you know, I don't know what God told you or led you to do. And I'm not going to brandish you with being right or wrong there. I'm telling you from a wisdom standpoint, you guys are not ready to be married. I don't tell them don't get married because that doesn't help. I just say you're not ready to be married. And you know what 99.9 out of 100 do? They go get married. And then they come back at some point in time, and I'm not a prophet, and they, they're with their head in their hands crying, well, I should be listening to you. And I mean, not, I'm, I'm pretty discompassionate. <laughs> the cow's out of the barn, guys. You're going to make it work. And we can help you make it work. But it's hard. isn't it hard enough to be married? And if you have wise people saying, Wait a year. Get some help. Think about this. Because too often, our experience that we attribute to the Holy Spirit, let's just put a question mark over it. I'm not going to throw it out completely, but let's just put a question mark over it as a placeholder for now. Because there's so much disagreement and error and misunderstanding and different outcomes, uh, I want you to think about the Holy Spirit with me for a few weeks. Now, um, one of the things I encourage people to do, some of you are all electronic, that's fine, um, but you need a, a good Bible. You need to know how to study the Bible, whether it's precept, BSF, community Bible study, a book you buy online, I don't care, but you need a methodical way of being in the Word on a regular basis. There is no substitute for it. There is no growth apart from it, Period. Now, this is an index to the questions we may have. And uh, there's a list of a number of resources, and I won't say they're better or worse. They all have different strengths, and I'm sure you might have one if you're a person that uses some real books or online. Uh, Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie is perhaps the easiest entry level. A seventh grade person 
could read that book and understand it. Uh, the, the Moody Handbook of Theology by uh, Paul Enns is one that I like for a number of reasons. One of the reasons I like this book, it, it, although it looks big, it's not. The pages on the article uh, on the topics are small, but he did something most theologies haven't done. He's updated things like, what do Catholics think? What about the Charismatics? What about neo-evangelicalism? What about the emerging emergent church? What about evangelical feminism? which is huge today. You're not going to find that in some of the older theology handbooks. Another one that I love is Walter Elwell's An Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. And just like the title would suggest, it's not a theology like this, but you look up the topic of modalism. You look up the topic of uh, sanctification or predestination or election, and you're going to get a few paragraphs on that topic that's going to take you to passages. So think of these books as an index to subjects in the Bible. That makes sense? Another one that I love, and, and these are older, but Practical Christian Theology by Floyd Barackman and Christian Theology, a little book by Emory uh, Bancroft. And then the sort of the, the big one is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Wayne is a close friend of mine. Wayne and I do not agree on a number of theological points. We have, a, we have some major differences on a number of points. I love him as a brother and I respect him, although we disagree. What am I trying to tell you? I can still learn from someone from whom I disagree. It's not error. I wouldn't call it error. Some of you might. But some of his definitions. The problem with Wayne's book is it's that big. And I know people. People buy books and they do not read them. How many do you have on your shelf that you haven't even started? How many of you are book collectors? Just be honest. Confess. We can walk the aisle. We can, we can, we can all say, here I am. I buy too many books. Um, technology has changed that. And I don't, I don't, I love the fact that I have thousands of books on my Logos library. I love it. But there's something about a real text. This is one of my hobby horses. One of these books ought to be on your shelf. They're not inerrant. They're not the Bible. It's an index to some of these complicated issues. So when you're in a conversation and someone tells you, well, the Holy Spirit told me, how are you going to deal with that? Well, a book like Ends theology is going to talk in several chapters about pneumatology, what the Holy Spirit does, who he is, how we understand that. And that's what I mean by the two things I long for maturing Christians have a working knowledge of how to study the Bible and then have an index to help you with some questions that are hard sometimes to find answers to. Make sense? That's so much for the commercial. And I'm not trying to sell books. Nobody's asked me to sell these books. I reviewed them for free. Um, so let's start thinking about pneumatology. A lot of the notes that I've, I'm going to show you this morning are from ENDS and other places, but I like the way ENDS organizes them, and I want to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, first of all, let's think about the Holy Spirit with these three overriding points. The Holy Spirit is a member of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, this is a problem with English language because as people, we personify, you know, the term anthropomorphism. We ascribe human traits to something. That tree is strong. Well, yeah, but it's not like a human being. 
or, you know, that apple is beautiful. Well, sure, but it's not like a human being. We anthro, with the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he might find whose heart is totally yielded to him. Are the two eyeballs circling the planet like satellites? It's an image we anthropomorphically look at God. It's not bad, it's just an understanding. So when we use the word person, and there's some heavy language I won't bore you with about how we speak of the Holy Spirit as a person, but just use that as a placeholder. Third, the Holy Spirit is God. And this, interestingly, is a surprise to a lot of people. He's not a dispatched spirit that goes and does things for God. He is God. So these to me are sort of three whetstones to sharpen our theological knife on that we keep in mind. He's part of the Trinity. He is a person and he is God. Now, a sidebar, and this goes back to Augustine who lived 354 and beyond. He authored seven statements. And remember, when Augustine's on the planet, there's one church. And we speak of the Catholic church in the early years, it was not the Catholic church of today. Even though you might have been in Geneva or in Germany or in Italy or wherever or North Africa where he spent a lot of time, they had cultural uniquenesses, but there was one church. So when we speak of Augustine, it's not like he's a Catholic like we would think of Catholics today because there was no differentiation. But there were differences geographically. He came up with seven statements because, by the way, this is an issue when he lived. This is an issue from the Bible, from Paul's teaching, from Jesus' teaching, from John 14, perhaps the most important passage on the Holy Spirit. He's going, well, how do we explain this? So Augustine came up with seven statements that are brilliant. Number one, the Father is God. Number two, the Son is God. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God. Easy enough. But when you read those three, you can automatically begin to think, well, there could be more than one God. Just based on those statements, there could be three gods. Uh, moreover, maybe it's the same name, the same person, but we're using three different names. Christy references, I would say, I'm known as Michael, I'm known as Dad, and I'm known as Saba. My grandsons call me Saba. That's Hebrew for grandpa. So I'm Michael, I'm Dad, I'm Saba. It's the same person, three names. It's not so we had to differentiate. That's what we call modalism. So what he did to correct the error, the next three statements, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. I don't have time, but the sequence of what he did and how he, how he put the Son, Spirit, and Father in an order is, uh, sorry, Theological chills on the back of my neck right now. I'm sorry. What he did here in these three statements is remarkable. He's not the son. He's not the spirit. He's not the father. Now, that still left the possibility that there could be three gods. So the final statement was, there's one God. Mathematically, this is impossible. Theologically, it's true. Mathematically, these seven statements are impossible. Theologically, it's true. And you're never going to explain it adequately with a triangle or an egg or water, ice, and steam. You're never going to be able to use an anthropomorphic observation to explain this. And these seven statements to me are simple, 
and easy to go back to and sequential. And I love the way he, you know, put the icing on the cake. There's one God. So we've got this tension. Persons isn't the best word, but we're going to use it. Three persons, one God. All right. Now let's think about what he does, what his work is. And again, you, you, you know that my little side gig is called In Context, Michael Easley, In Context, because for all my life I've said In Context, In Context, In Context, and when we started the radio years ago back in Chicago and then the podcast uh, marketing people said, just use Michael Easley In Context because that's the word you say all the time. Okay, so that's my, I'm, I'm like uber critical of context. And when we look at these statements, this is very important when you're thinking about the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's look at each one of them briefly. Number one, the Spirit teaches. Um, by the way, the Spirit's name in, in John, for example, is some iteration of parakaleo, one called alongside. So the King's English, I think, used paraclete. Did not the King's English, King James Bibles use the paraclete will come? Uh, there's another word that Jesus uses, another helper. Another parakaleo. So we see the personage of him, another, and there's a, a big word I won't bore you with, but another of the same kind would not be wrong. Again, human language limits us in the way we think about a spiritual thing sometimes. But what, the, what we're learning here is that he is a helper of the same kind. Uh, John 14, 16 is one passage. There are so many. But the Holy Spirit is going to perform and carry on the same kind of ministry that Jesus did. Think of the context of that room. This is the upper room discourse. John 13, he's washed their feet. Judas is going to defect. We have 14 through 18 technically. We have what's known as the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying to his father before his crucifixion in the earshot of his disciples, the 11 remaining disciples. And the prayer is a masterpiece you will never, ever exhaust your study of. He's praying that God will glorify him, and he's praying that he'll glorify his name and the disciples. And he sets them up, I'm going to give you a helper, another of a same kind, and we might say who's better than me staying on the planet. Because unless I go to heaven, I can't send the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer permanently. And we know from the Old Testament that the Spirit would leave and come. We know in Saul's story, we know when David sinned, he prays in the Psalms, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We use that in songs as well. But he's going to teach. Now, this is the thing I want you to keep in mind about the Spirit's work. The context is critical because I'm going to argue he's talking to the disciples. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you. Don't want to press this too hard, and we'll talk in future uh, messages, God willing, about how the Spirit teaches us today, not the same way he taught the disciples. It's a different modus operandi. Um, Secondly, the Holy Spirit testifies. Again, when we read the word testify or bear witness, these are, these are religious words that mean nothing. So erase the idea of we're going to give testimonies or give a witness. Erase that for just a moment, not to be unkind. What do you do if you're deposed? Some of you have been deposed. Some of you have probably been on a trial. I have a friend in here I know who's been, who's been to trial several times. And you swear to tell the truth. 
the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. And then they ask you a bunch of questions. You are giving a testimony of what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know about the situation. Think of that in the same way. Forget the Christianese testimony part of it. I'm not trying to minimize that, but understand you're just telling what you know, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know to be true. So the spirit is going to testify. What is he going to testify? John 15, 16, he will bear witness of me, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit's work is going to be to teach these 11 in particular, to help them bear witness of Christ. And then third, he's going to guide them. And this, again, this is one that's taken way out of context and used to, in, in some respects, to uh, authorize what we do as being of God, and other times to give it sort of an authority. And Well, the Lord told me to do He guided me to do this. We're going to be very careful. The audience in context were the 11. He's going to teach them. He's going to testify about Christ in them, and he's going to guide them. Um, he's not going to guide them into some new truth. He's going to guide them in what he wants them to talk about. So if we fast forward and think of Stephen and the sermon he preached, um, that would be arguably a pretty good example of the Holy Spirit using one of the current disciples in that context in Acts to speak a sermon that people are still marveling at. Fourth, the Spirit convicts. John 16, 18, and this one is one that was a real eye-opener for me in, in college because how many of us would argue with, yeah, the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin? We wouldn't. If you're a Christian, you'd say, yes, the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. Uh, technically, the passage says he convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And now you've got to ask some really hard questions. What's the world in the book of John? It's the word cosmos in Greek. But what does it mean the way John uses the term? These are Pandora boxes theologically. These are huge topics that you never have even thought about or worried about unless you're a super Bible nerd. But they're important to understanding the person and work of the Spirit. What does it mean when he convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? Um, you've heard me say perhaps the, coin, the phrase I use is the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. Because a guilty conscience is over some index of how I understand right and wrong. The Holy Spirit is going to convict us of sin, not just right and wrong. But the primary audience was to the disciples telling them, I'm going to send the Spirit to convict the world. Can I suggest for your thinking, once they have the Spirit, they're not going to, listen carefully, need the same conviction the world is going to need. The world's going to need to understand who this Christ is. The world's going to need the influence. So there's something going on with the Spirit's work and power that's beyond just making you and me feel guilty or ashamed about our sin. Let's give him a little more credit, can we? And then fifth, the Spirit regenerates. And this word is, we use born again. You hear that term a lot. Um, you nor I can regenerate ourselves. Um, this week's been a strange week for us in Middle Tennessee and our network of friendships. A couple of uh, high school boys have died. I just learned this morning a, a friend of Cindy's and mine, her husband died yesterday. Um, younger than us. You're not supposed to die when you're younger than you, right? Um, so no one can regenerate that person. 
when they're flatlined and the medical community has tried, they've resuscitated, they've slammed you know, all kinds of chemistry in them, maybe put them CPR, maybe whatever, they're dead. They cannot regenerate them. The spirit regenerates not just a human body, but an eternal life. That's only something the spirit can do. Sixth, the spirit intercedes. And this becomes interesting because we think of an intercessor. Um, some of you might know the governor of Tennessee. Some of you might know the president of the United States or former president. Some of you might know the CEO of a company. And if you know somebody, you can pretty much walk in and see them. I have some phone numbers in my phone of important people in high places that I can text or call or talk to because I know them. Uh, I've lost a relationship with some, but I have an intercessor. I have somebody who knows them. And so I can text so-and-so and say, hey, can you get a message to so-and-so? Can you, if I send you a book in the mail, would you get it to so-and-so? I need someone as a go-between. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit intercession has to do with the believer's weaknesses. And the passage that most of us know is Romans 8, 26, where he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. You've probably read that phrase or heard it. The Holy Spirit intercedes for groanings too deep for words. Now, some of my charismatic friends, not all, have argued this is a tongue language thing, a glossolalia. And just as a side, side, sidebar, in Acts 2, it's all known language. It's dialectos, Parthian, Medes, Scythians, all these languages. And they were hearing their mother language as people were speaking. I think people missed a two-sided miracle going on there. They were speaking in their mother tongue, and I'm of Irish-German descent, and I was hearing you speaking French came into my ear as German. And every time it's a dialectos, dialectos. By the time we get to the Pauline, we have the word glossa, and we have different words for tongues. And so they'll differentiate between a heavenly language and a good student of charismatic theology will acknowledge Acts 2 is not the gift of tongues the way it is in Corinthians and following. So just just kind of give you a framework for what's going on here. So some will say, well, that's, you know, that's when you speak in tongues. It's too deep. And I go, wait a minute. Let's just look at the English. It's too deep for words. What's a groan? It's a groan. You don't even have to look it up. It's a groan. Um, any of you around children or grandchildren, and when they get hurt, it's a wonderful illustration. When a kid gets really hurt, the wind knocked at them, what's going on in their face? There's no noise, right? They're taking that deep breath before what? Wah! Are there any words behind that? It's a great picture of a groan. When I've been in so much pain with back issues, I'm not speaking in tongues. Well, maybe I am. Uh, I'm groaning. I am in pain. I am in agony. You women who have gone natural childbirth, hoo-yah, and you've given that baby and you've pushed, you're groaning. Now, you might have some words in those groans, but you're groaning. You're making all kinds of painful noises. Don't overwork the text. Groaning's too deep for words. Paul's point is not some special language here. He's saying the spirit knows what's going on. It's just that simple. When you can't articulate how much pain or hurt you're in, when you're groaning at that level, the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. It's very simple. Don't overwork the text. Um, 
And then finally, the Spirit commands. And we don't see this, I would argue, much in the, in the Bible. We see it in Acts 13, 2, in Acts um, 16, Acts 8, when the Holy Spirit commands Paul and Barnabas to do something. Uh, but that's a rare occurrence. And by the time Acts tapers off, we're, we're, it's kind of gone. Let me just make a comment about the book of Acts 2, because I find uh, it helps me, and I find a lot of Christians don't understand the book of Acts. Think of the book of Acts as sort of a, a, a diamond laid sideways. And we're going from law to grace, from Israel to Gentiles, from a nation to a kingdom. And a lot of things going on in the book of Acts. It's a transition book. And each chapter, be, beginning with Acts 1 8, is <coughs> the gospel is going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. And that really is an outline geographically and theologically of the record of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, and I would argue subtitle should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what the Spirit does in those people's lives, they were to wait until what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. So we got this concentric ring geographically and theologically that's moving out. So the commands of the Holy Spirit are interesting on the front part of the book, and then it, it tends to diminish a little bit. Because we, of course, first we have uh, Peter, Stephen, of course, early on in the book. We have Peter, and then Peter begins to fade. And then we have Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, and Barnabas comes along. And so the book transitions from Peter to Paul, who goes to the Gentiles. And so we have that geographical and theological outline how the book expands. <clears throat> so when you study the Holy Spirit or any doctrine, if you will, in the book of Acts, you must keep this transition in mind. You must keep in mind, otherwise you can piecemeal one passage of Acts. And let me just say this for the record. You take any passage out of context, you're going to misapply it. Period. You can create all kinds of crazy theologies if you just take verses out of context. And that's what people can be in danger of doing. And that's why context is so critical. Um, let's think of the Spirit's personality and then two lessons. Um, Charles Ryrie writes, it's a little cumbersome, but stay with me, you'll get it. Certain acts are performed toward the Holy Spirit, which would be most incongruous if he did not possess true personality. We can't describe these things about the Holy Spirit if he's not a person. Please use that word person with quotes around it. I may get to that later in the weeks ahead, but it's a little cumbersome. It's just a placeholder because we don't have a better word. All right. There are some words, but they're a little complicated. Certain acts are performed toward the Holy Spirit, which would be incongruous if he wasn't a person. So think of that as we look at these terms. He can be grieved. He can be blasphemed. He can be lied to. He can be obeyed. What's Ryrie saying? That's a person. You can't blaspheme a theory. You can't blaspheme a principle. You're blaspheming a person. You're not lying to a theory. You're lying to a person. Make sense? I don't want to overwork this. He can be grieved. Um, Isaiah 63.10 is sort of the champion passage for that. Well, and, and I would say this is an efficacious way of looking at it. When you and I live in sin, we grieve God's spirit. I, I wouldn't 
over-anthropomorphize that. I wouldn't make it more than it is, but I would, I would want you to, to embrace it. I need to embrace it. When I choose to sin, let me put it in uh, Middle Tennessee language, you break his heart. You break his heart. You grieve him. Secondly, he can be blasphemed. And this one is an interesting passage because we all know about the one unforgivable sin is what? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? That's one of those Bible difficulty questions. It's really a pretty straightforward answer. When you attribute to Satan something Christ has done, you've blasphemed the Spirit of God. When you attribute to Satan something God has done, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because the entity of the Spirit's work in the world and Satan's work in the world are juxtaposed. And so if he's doing something and you attribute it to Satan, then that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. And this pass these passages, Acts 7.51, for example, uh, when Stephen's being stoned to death, pelted to death, he says, you are always, he says, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. These were the religious political leaders of the day who should have embraced Jesus Christ from the onset, but because of their pride, their position, their power, their money, their lifestyle, they didn't like what this Jesus was about. And Stephen, as he's about to be stoned to death, says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. So you can resist him. Uh, fourth, he can be lied to. And we have the famous or infamous story of Ananias and Sapphira after Barnabas gives the tract of land to the apostles and they sell it and give the money to the, the early church. Ananias and Sapphira see that the, the fan mail that, uh, that uh, Barnabas got and they go, hey, let's do that. And so they bring some money in, and they made one little nuance. They, I would say, they said, this is all we got. What they should have done is said, we kept part of it back, but we're giving you this amount. It had been hunky-dory, happy ending. But evidently, they presented it. This was everything. And it's a pretty striking passage. It's hard to read. And they're what? They're killed. They're killed on the spot because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the Spirit can be obeyed. And I love the story in Acts chapter 10 when you have Cornelius and Peter. Peter's a Jew's Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's in Caesarea. Peter's in Jerusalem. And the vision comes to Peter three times of this sheet. Remember? It's got all these unclean animals on it. And three times the sheet comes down from heaven and uh, the voice says, arise, take, kill, and eat. And Peter goes, no, no, I can't do it. Arise, take, and finally the dialogue is, I've never eaten anything unclean. Arise, go, take, kill, and eat. Is he telling him you don't have to be kosher and you can eat lower crustaceans now? Is that the point of the sheet? Well, it'd be okay if he did. The point of the sheet is, Go to the Gentile. They're unclean. They eat unclean. What God has cleansed, you can go to now. And so Peter goes down. Cornelius has had this companion vision. It's a fun story. Peter's got this vision with the sheets. Cornelius has got this story that a guy named Peter's going to come to him and explain the gospel to him. Can't make this stuff up. And he comes down to him 
And I, I think they had a shrimp boil. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, it was exciting. And that God has opened the way to the Gentile. Now, for the pious Jew, this was hard to swallow, no pun intended. This was hard to accept. He was a Jewish Messiah. He came into his own, and his own knew him not. So he goes to the Gentiles. And he picks the Jews, Jews, school of Hillel, rabbis, rabbi, Saul, who becomes Paul, to take the message to the Gentile population. This is mind, this is crazy how God unfolds this story. But Peter obeys the Spirit. Okay, this is a lot of information. I know it's more Sunday school than sermon, but you're, you're adults. You can handle it. Um, let me give you two final lessons for this, and then we'll continue this week after next. Uh, number one, be careful not to attribute to God something he did not say. I don't care if you're going to put it under the, the, the uh, moniker of the Holy Spirit told me, led me, inclined me. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm not mad if you say that. I might be silently judging your theology. Uh, but I'm going to encourage you, don't attribute it to God. Uh, attribute it to a choice. Attribute it to your, your decision. But if God doesn't say it specifically, and even how we can sometimes misapply the Bible, do not attribute to God something he didn't say. I can see a couple, I'm 29 years old. They had both been through multiple divorces and remarriages. He had remained, excuse me, he had remained single, but his wife had been through multiple divorces and remarriages. She came back to his original husband, and they're sitting in my office with hands clutched in their 60s. God has led us together. We know we've prayed, and he led us together. And even though I was 29, I wasn't very diplomatic, but I said, uh, no, uh, lust and loneliness has brought you together. He didn't say anything. He was a friend. She got very animated and mad at me. And I said, I'm sorry, but let's just step back. We'll talk about wisdom for a minute. Multiple marriages and divorces you've been through, you've come, quote, home, close quote, to your first husband. I don't even have to look at a whole lot of passages to show you. Let's just say it's not right or wrong. Let's just say it's not wise. It's just not wise. I think it's wrong, but it, let's just say it's not wise. And you know what they did? They went down to the Methodist church, they got married, and they came back. Lasted about 10 months. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I don't live in other people's decisions. But as a, as a believer in Christ, as a brother, I'm trying to say, this, don't attribute something to God. I mean, how many times in school did anybody sign their parents' name on a test in school? I did. I did. You know, and it looked like my handwriting. I mean, I didn't try to make it look like mom's. It looked like my handwriting. And what happened? I got busted. And I got in worse trouble than if I had showed the bad grade to mom and dad. That's what you're doing when you attribute some thought, some decision you make. Uh, I'm not trying to, I know a lot of you in this room have been hurt by divorce or marriage. I'm not trying to pile on. It's just illustrative. A woman a few years ago came to my office and she had a great list of reasons of why she should divorce her husband. And I didn't dispute any of them. And then when she said, God led me and told me, and I said, okay, let, let's just set all this aside. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to ask you one question. What does Jesus think of your decision? Because when you walk out of that door, 
it doesn't matter what pastor, what Christian friend, what Bible teacher you like, whoever your guru is, it doesn't matter what they say or do. When you walk out that door, metaphorically, you make a decision. And my, if I could be like Paul, I implore you, brethren, by the mercies of God, don't attribute it to him. Be careful. Secondly, be careful to ground your theology in the word, not your experience. And this last principle, I think, would revolutionize most Christians' day-to-day experience in the Word and with Christian friends and how they navigate life. If you would not look at how, I mean, and part of this is the Western notion. You've heard me talk about if-then theology. If I do this, then this may happen. If you invest, then you probably will get a return. If you get out of debt, you're going to do better. If-then is true in many situations. It is not Always true biblically. It is not true theologically. So don't look at your experience as some pulse or litmus test on your Christian life. Listen, if it works out and it's a blessing, praise God. Be careful not to attribute the success or failure to God. Why in the world? For example, uh, Cindy and I had this ongoing collegial conversation about we move from here to here to here to here. And some things don't always work out the way you want. And I just kind of turned the page. I'm one of those guys, turn the page, turn the page. And she's like, well, you know, this had to happen for this had to happen, this had to happen, that's why we're here. And I go, honey, if that makes you feel better, it's okay. I'm not mad at you. You're wrong, but I'm not mad at you. And she rolls her eyes and walks away, which she rightly should. Don't attribute your experiences to God telling you something. Yes, be thankful when they work out. Here's the hard part. Can you be thankful when they don't work out? I saw something on Instagram the other day that was basically an admonishment to everybody on Instagram going, are you thankful for 2020? That's a pretty good question. We were, we were joking earlier this morning about when we look back, you know, say hindsight's 2020. Huh? We're going to have to rework all this language, you know. <laughs> It's like you can't say that trumps it anymore. That just doesn't work anymore. <clears throat> right, 2020 vision, not so much. It's almost like somebody has a sense of humor. Be careful to ground your theology in the word, not your experience. And here's the cool part of this if you embrace this. When you're in the word and things don't make sense and your life's not the way you wish it was and your husband doesn't do this, your wife doesn't do that, your kids, the job, the money, the retirement, the health, whatever, you know what? You trust him, not your experience. He's the God of the universe. He's sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, always existing, and he loves you. And he says, will you trust me? Don't let your experience, or to paraphrase, don't let the world teach you theology.